0: Welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode number nine, recorded on January 24th, 2019. And today, I'm joined by.
1: Kelly Schuster-Paredes.
0: And Peter Kazarnoff, our first ever guest on Teaching Python. Welcome, Peter. (laughs) Hi, Kelly. Hi, Sean. Thank you so much for having me on the
2: show. I really, really love your show, and I'm super excited to talk about teaching Python, some differences in learning styles, pedagogy, and talk about Python at community colleges, because I know you work at middle school, so I'd like to hear about how that contrasts uh, with the kind of
0: stuff I do at a community college. Well, we're really thrilled to have you here too, Peter. It's going to be great to kind of compare notes and see where there are similarities and differences between these different learning levels. So to get us started, Peter, tell us a little bit about where you work and and what kind of students you teach. So, my name is Peter Kazarnoff, and I
2: teach engineering at Portland Community College in beautiful Portland, Oregon. So, quick background on what a community college is, if there's some international listeners. So, community colleges are colleges in the United States that students go to often after high school, but adults who have had high school education also enroll in them as well. And it sort of fulfills two roles. So, one of those roles would be as a two-year vocational program. And uh, we have like an automotive program, a welding program that students would go to community college for two years and then become an auto mechanic or go to community college for two years and become a welder. But community colleges also have the first two years of a four-year regular college education. So for instance, I teach engineering. So my students will take the first two years of engineering classes here at Portland Community College, and then they might finish their junior in their senior year, their third and their fourth year of engineering classes at a four year school. So here in Oregon, that might be Portland State University or Oregon State University or the University of Oregon. I teach a couple different classes. So those include some programming in our intro to engineering class. We call that ENGR 101. That's the first engineering class our students take. There are a couple programming labs, and then I also teach the engineering programming class. So for a lot of the engineering students, that's their second engineering class. And then I also teach a number of second-year mechanical engineering courses like material science as well as manufacturing.
0: Very interesting. Tell us a little bit about your students. I mean, we're kind of lucky in some ways because all of our students are about the same age. They all live in the same geographic area. They are all in the same grades. They've had a lot of the same education coming up. But I'd imagine that in a community college, your students are coming from a whole variety of different backgrounds and educational experiences prior to this and especially that 101 course might be a little challenging for some of them as their first jump back into education in a lot of cases.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, Sean. So, one thing about Portland Community College is that we are a very large school. It depends on how you count, but we've got about 70,000 students. So, Portland Community College is actually the largest college in Oregon, it's larger than the University of Oregon and Oregon State. So we have a pretty big geographic reach in the Portland metro region. I've done this exercise where students have to put their commute time up on a chalkboard, and then we run some statistics on their commute times. And some commute times have been in five minutes, and I've had commute times that are an hour and a half too. Traffic's bad in Portland, but because students commuting from that far away, they definitely live pretty far outside uh, the geographic area of the city of Portland, Oregon. There's also a big range of ages. So my youngest students would be college and the high school age, and what that means is they'd be high school students that are taking some college classes, so they could be 17 or 18. Then I have a lot of what you would call regular age college students between like 18 and 25, and then I have a large number of students also who are older than 25, and definitely students who are in their 50s and students who are in their 60s. There's also a big range of socioeconomic backgrounds, students who come from relatively wealthy backgrounds, and computers have been in their homes and they used to them, or students who've come from different backgrounds where that might not have been as common. There's also a big diversity of languages, so the students may speak Uh, language that's not English at home. And Python really is an English programming language. And that wasn't something that I really considered to be inherent in programming. The import function, that's a word in English. The type function, that's a word in English. And a lot of the students here at Portland Community College, English isn't their first language or the language that they speak at home. So we have a pretty big range of diverse students.
1: I can imagine there's a lot of differentiation going on just listening to it. I went to a community college before I went for my pre-med and I, I remember having a couple of older students and they brought a wealth of knowledge into our classes so I can imagine for you, you get to tend to all different types of students and different ranges.
2: And definitely different familiarity and comfort levels with computers. I think it's a stereotype and not necessarily true that older students have less familiarity with computers because I definitely have some students who are younger students who don't have very much familiarity with computers and I don't want to stop the class, making sort of that ageist assumption about being familiar with computers, but they definitely, the students that I teach definitely have a pretty big range of backgrounds and comfort level, just sitting down and using a computer and even just in the very first day of class, when we have to log into our learning management system, that's like our version of Moodle or our version of Blackboard or our version of Canvas, different students can do that super super quick. And other students, um, it's a little bit less familiar just to hop right into like, oh, here's my assignment. That's where my syllabus is. Uh, That's something that
0: they do even before the class starts. In terms of the curriculum for your courses, how does that how does that initial experience or that initial starting point match up with the outcomes in that, like say the Engineering 101 course, like the desired outcomes for the course? Is that something that the students have a clear understanding of, here's what I'm trying to get to or here's my goal? Do they have other goals that are maybe less defined by the curriculum but more about moving on to other classes or building a base set of skills? When they come in, why are they taking your class? Like is it just because it's a requirement or do they have other goals that they have in mind and, and what are the, some of those goals that you've heard so far
2: yeah that's a really good question sean so i guess i'd break outcomes for these students into maybe a a couple of different time frames so in a fairly far away for time frame for a lot of them those would be outcomes for work Uh, like a lot of these students will become professional engineers a lot of these students will eventually take what's called the pe exam which is the engineering exam you take to be able to stamp plans and we need to be able to teach the skills for engineers to use in their jobs when they start in the workforce. Then a time goal that's a little bit closer would be students who are taking engineering classes at Portland Community College. They're going to move on to a four-year school, and we want those students to be successful when they're taking their junior or their senior-level engineering classes. And those classes, they get pretty hard. You have to take numerical methods. Those classes get pretty difficult. So we want to make sure we prepare our students for success. Success in those classes. Like I imagine you want to prepare your students for success when they move on to high school, for instance. And then shorter term goal would be transferring to that four-year school. They want to be able to successfully get into the four-year school. And then a shorter goal would be success in other engineering classes here at PCC. And then like what we would call sort of the course outcomes, those would be like solving the problems and gaining the skills that are specific to the course. So that might be something like being able to use vectors, use the engineering problem-solving method, understand uh, significant figures and precision. Uh, Those would be things in our intro course, or be able to use programming to solve real-world problems, be able to use programming to take a data set and derive meaningful statistics or results from it, or be able to interface computers with external hardware to solve a real problem. Those would kind of be the examples of like the near-term course outcomes that we're shooting for
1: so when they come in for their engineering course and programming they don't necessarily have any background in programming is that correct
2: Yeah, that's right, Kelly. So when the students come to us, especially for the ENGR 101 course, it is very likely that they have zero programming experience. Some of the students may have taken a C programming class because it depends upon what kind of an engineer you're going to be. That might be your required course of study. And some of them may have had programming in high school, or if they're super lucky, like your students in middle school, My experience has been if they haven't taken uh, the programming class in college that few students have any exposure to it yet does that kind of mirror your experience kelly like your students have a lot of them been exposed to it or is this the first time that they see it
1: and our school i think we were pretty unique in the in the schools that i've actually worked at in the past have all been unique situations in coding and i've been told it's not like that in most public schools but in our school we're a pk-12 school so from the little four-year-olds i was just having a conversation with my son on the way to the doctors and he's he says mommy we were debugging today and i said you were what (laughs) you were what and he's like yeah and i said do you know what that means he's like fixing problems (laughs) (laughs) so so i think our kids are a little bit unique in this situation our school made a made a commitment to the curriculum about I don't know, she said three before I got here mm-hmm. so before three years ago where we were going to put in computer computer science for all ages and our little kids are, are using a lot of blo- block programs but they're more on using the block programs and not scripting at all so when they come to us in sixth grade we just started scripting.
0: The other interesting point about the way that our curriculum has grown is that we made that commitment three four years ago to having computer science which means that the eighth graders that we have now started that in fourth fifth sixth grade right that was where they really started to get that exposure by the time we have kelly's son in eighth grade he's going to have nine years of computer science experience right so we are we have this constantly moving target and this constantly rising bar in terms of what we need to do to meet students where they're at with their computer science and it's pretty exciting in terms of what's possible at this stage. We have to be careful to make sure that we aren't setting too high of expectations. There's still some things that you know, they will need to learn, that they need to figure out in order to be able to be successful.
1: Yeah, and then the other thing on the, on the flip side, on the teaching, is we're constantly having to upgrade. So I had to learn Python in the summer. <laughs> And I'm still learning Python, and i I always say to them at the point with the kids that what takes me a, a year to learn, they are learning in nine weeks and And they're learning they they take it in better. It's like when they speak Spanish or something, when they learn at a younger age, they're able to communicate better than when an adult tries to learn Spanish. So it's right. just an interesting it's an interesting situation that we have. I know it's different in a lot of schools. So a lot of schools, they don't have the, the K-12 computer science program. They'll have, you know, some parts, but...
2: Yeah, and my experience mirrors that a little bit. Some of my students have been like, yeah, I started programming really early. I'm a gamer. Some students identify with that. I didn't start doing scripting-type programming until my adulthood. In graduate school, I did a little bit of LabVIEW, which is this, it's a little bit like Scratch in a way. You drag these icons around the screen, connect them with wires, but it was all just to solve a specific problem, and I always started with somebody else's program, and it wasn't until about three years ago that I started learning Python, because first here at my job, I had to learn MATLAB. We moved to Python uh, relatively recently, and that's also been a learning process, trying to like get all of our curriculum moved over from MATLAB and into Python.
1: And that's interesting. Did they make the switch because more of the the careers are going into Python? Is that's what's happening in the, the career field of engineering?
2: That's a really good question. So there's no doubt that Python is used professionally in a lot of engineering applications, like the Large Hadron Collider. Some of their software runs on Python, or YouTube, uh, Instagram, some of that runs on Python. Some of our local companies that I visited in our manufacturing course, they also use Python. There's a company here outside of Portland that makes pacemakers, and they use some Python at their company. So it hasn't been like, um, MATLAB is universally used at all of these companies that the students might hire. It's a little more prevalent that MATLAB is used at four-year colleges that teach engineering, but that is also starting to change. MIT, for instance, they teach Python now, and I believe Stanford, they teach Python now. So some of the top engineering schools are moving towards teaching Python. For us, it was kind of a combination of things. One is just when the students get jobs, it's probably more likely that they'll use Python or that Python will be more useful for them. Even if they don't become engineers, uh, maybe they go into law school, maybe they go on to business school, maybe they choose a different career, Python can still sort of be a superpower for them in that other career, whereas MATLAB isn't wi- as widely used. Uh, another reason was just that it has all of the tools that we need. Uh, NumPy has numerical computing, Matplotlib has plotting, PySerial has communication with hardware, SymPy has uh, abstract math, and so all the tools that we could do in MATLAB Uh, we can do in Python. And then another key reason is just accessibility. For a lot of our students, a $50 MATLAB install and then a book that costs over $100, that's a really big deal. Credits here at the college cost $111 per credit. So you might be paying $1,500 in tuition and your textbook cost And in the case of a programming class, your software installation cost, that might kind of be in the same realm of magnitude cost-wise. And it depends on your financial aid package, but uh, your financial aid might not pay for your software installation, might not pay for your textbook. So by moving to Python, which is open source and free, we can make that software installation cost zero. Uh, We can also decrease the cost for the college. And if the cost for the college is lower, maybe we could keep tuition lower or offer more scholarships. That's another thing. And then just the fact that Python runs on a lot of different pieces of uh, hardware. So it depends. There are ways to run Python on Chromebooks. There are ways to run Python on uh, notebook and tablets. And we only had MATLAB installed at the engineering labs on campus. So it wasn't on all of the computers in the library. I, I felt like a little bit like which students are we choosing to succeed here by making this choice about programming language. And I hope by making the change that we can open up programming and the problem solving tools to like a, a wider array of students.
1: So just out of curiosity, in the engineering field, where do they, what type of math and stuff are they taking to supplement? Are mm-hmm. they in uh, statistics or in the calculus? Are they going into some more of a data science type math? or?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, Kelly. So here's another way our students compare. So in order to be enrolled in the ENGR 101 class, the first engineering class, you have to at least be co-enrolled in calculus and be co-enrolled in the physics class with calculus. So that's a pretty high bar. And a lot of community college students, it could take them a year or more just to get to the point where they're taking calculus. But the, by the time they're in my engineering programming class, they've had already had their first calc course, and most of them have already finished their first physics with calc course. So the math ability of the students is pretty high. And then the thing that comes along with that, after listening to you and Sean talk about like sticktuitiveness or perseverance, is there's just built into a student who has gotten to the point that they've passed college calculus or that they're enrolled in physics with calculus. You have to have like stick enough to the point that you like hit that bar in order to get into the engineering programming class. So in some ways our community college students are very diverse but in other ways you have to like have taken calc to get into the class and that's a, a very high bar to get into to be and to go into the class so I can start the class with fairly high-level math concepts and be pretty confident that the students are comfortable using those and I don't expect that's necessarily the case with middle school students
0: yeah yeah the other thing that we see with our students too is that they've had you know, kind of the traditional math experience, some things are new and different, and there's new ways that we're exploring for teaching math, but they haven't really had a lot of opportunities to apply it yet. And that's one of the things that I really like about adult learners is by if you're in your 50s or 60s and you're taking, calculus and you're persevering through calculus class, you probably have some things that you can point to in your career and in your life that you can say, oh, this is where I've used that, or this is where it helps, or here's how it apply it. You know, opportunities to think through problems and solve them and think about how things relate and interact. Middle school students haven't had that yet. They've had, or they've had a limited exposure to it. So what we see is even though some students have a variety of different math backgrounds and they're at different levels and taking different courses, Sometimes they still struggle with uh, how do I actually apply this math concept? How do I think through this problem and use this math concept to make it work? So I'm glad to hear that you know you're seeing that kind of high bar of of calculus in the community college, giving it some sort of unifying force, right? It's bringing people, it's bringing the class together, knowing that they can all handle it.
1: Yeah, and our our kids are more interested when we give them the, the math problems, we're still working on order of operations kind of aspects. So we don't get to have the the fun data mining that, that Sean loves to do, although he tries to throw it in as much as possible in all the physics classes, because our kids do take physics in eighth grade, so we do get to play around with dragsters and, and rockets and, and then weather, and there, so there are, are opportunities to use higher level math, but we're interested in seeing that happen with what you have. So real quick, on your first day of your course, besides going over your expectations and all the other boring stuff that teacher ha- teachers have to do, what do you you do as your first program
2: this is a really good question and i'm really glad that you asked it because i want to hear what you do on your first (laughs) day too so actually the thing that i do on the very first day is that i break students up into groups and i say each group has to investigate a programming language i assigned one group python but another group matlab another group javascript and said in about half an hour, your group is gonna have to report out on these six different questions, including like a code snippet and the history and then the students have to work together in groups and try to learn about a particular programming language. The reason that I went to this first day activity was that I wanted to make sure that I was doing a group type interactive activity as one of the very first things that we do, which is basically after we learn each other's names. And I wanted to make sure that the barrier for like preparation, how well you know how to program, didn't figure in at all to that very first thing that you do. So I figured I have pretty good confidence that just about any student in the class that has computers everywhere can open up Google and type something in Google and then be able to work in a group and be able to report back to the class about what they learned. And I wanted to make sure that our very first activity wasn't like a limiting activity that the very first day a student comes out of it and is like, oh, this isn't for me. Like, I had no idea what was going on. On and all these other students in the class like they knew what was going on yeah. in in adults I imagine in middle school too the imposter syndrome where you feel like you don't belong in the class but everybody else they should be there like they know what they're doing but me I don't know what I'm doing I've heard a lot of students say that and so I want to just try to prevent like imposter syndrome <laughs> at least on that very first day because there's tons of opportunity later that other students uh, will show that they're like pretty computer savvy or have a much better acumen or better background in terms of coding. This quarter I barely did any coding the first day. We talked about the syllabus names. We did this activity and I showed the students how to upload their first homework assignment uh, because they had to do homework by the next week. So what do you do on that very first day? Because I also imagine you might know some of the kids too that start, whereas I usually don't know any of the students.
1: We've got the extra benefit of having iterated this process. This is our third time doing it this year, so we've been doing a lot of different things each Mm -hmm. time. I know you started right, right away with the microbit on the first day, correct?
0: That's right. So, I, I started by having everyone take a microbit and a USB cable and pull out your laptop. We download Moo and we get a Hello World program running on the microbit. And then they have to change it, so the, they have to go through all of the steps of installing the program, writing the code, and I—I I don't give them the code somewhere online. It's up on the board. They have to type it in and get you know practice of typing something in exactly and then they download it and they see the code that they just typed in running on something. It's lighting up, it's doing something, it's interacting, and then they have to change it. So okay, now make it your own, make it say your name or change the picture on it. And I keep hearing when they're doing this, like that is so cool. But the whole reason for it is sort of to the same end that you have, which is overcoming that kind of self perception of who you are in a relationship to coding. Um, I don't have as many kids who are doing the imposter syndrome uh, yet, or at least they can't articulate it that way. But I do have a lot of kids who say, I'm not a coder, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I'm not good at technology, I'm not good at programming. They're not saying I don't belong here, um, but they are saying, like, I'm not, I, this is not my thing. And so the very first thing I want them to do is to write a program and have it run and see that they can do something and it's not an insurmountable task. It is something that they can truly accomplish and we do it in about 15 minutes or 20 minutes so it happens quickly.
1: Yeah, my first day, well my first day I always tell them look at all these big words on the syllabus. Don't, <laughs> rea- don't read it now but I'm challenging you on on the end of the nine weeks to go tell your parents that you understand everything on it and then I have them install Moo as well, because on day two, again, I do the same thing. I tried something new this quarter. I gave them a turtle code with one repetition of of a design, and it was about 18 lines or 20 lines of code, and again, they have to type it, and then I tell them, okay, you have to send me a a screenshot of three different designs by Saturday, and they're like, what? And I said, there are numbers there, don't you think you can try to change the numbers? And then I I stopped teaching and then I I just let them go. It was an interesting thing because I do, I have two classes. One class was definitely scared of different dynamics. And then the third class, I showed them import random today. And it's the third day of the course. We get to try a lot of different things, but I think our approach is always writing code. We never, we tend not to give them too much of the code at first. But writing it just to get into the process of writing it and doing, because we like that instantaneous feedback. The, the physical part of Python is what engages. If they can type something and see if it doesn't work or it doesn't produce something, then right away they know they're off, they're wrong. When it produces something, it's like, wow, that's cool. Mm-hmm. Show me more.
2: Yeah, so it's interesting. You feel like there's a good amount of value in just having the students type the command, even though it's not the command that they came up with themselves. They're just like reading a piece of paper that has the code on it, and they're just physically typing it, but they don't come up with any of the code. That's really interesting. And then the other thing was it's interesting to use the BBC microbits on the first day for our engineering students at the community college. They don't do that until the very end of the course order. And my sort of thinking was, well, it's going to be a pretty advanced skill to be able to get Python to run on these little microcontrollers. And now you've got wires and LEDs. What are that? So Sean, what do you see some of the values are? Or what are some of the barriers to doing that microcontroller right at the beginning, as opposed to doing it
0: as a more advanced topic towards the end? To be honest, I'm not sure that I could do it on any other microcontroller other than a microbit on the first day. And the the reason for that is simply that they've made it so simple, especially when you pair it with a Moo editor, that you can plug it into your computer, write some code, hit flash, and it runs on the microcontroller. I did some work over the weekend on an ESP32 board and having to use the command line tools and to flash all my files and to structure it very carefully, it's not a difficult task, but that's not something that I could do on day one. That's something that I would definitely push towards the end of the course once they've built up some of their confidence in how to make things work and how to troubleshoot problems. But day one with the micro bit, it's very doable. And all they're looking to do with it and the, the benefit that I see with it is that it's the tactile feedback. Especially for middle school students, they can hold it in their hand, they can see the lights, they can see the buttons clicking, things like that, that give them that reinforcement or that feedback that they've done something and they've made a change in the world through the programming that they've done. Like this thing is now something they wrote and it's now lighting up and I did that and it reinforces that it's something that they can do.
1: Yeah, and it's the attachments, the alligator clipping, and then the, the adding on to the the pens on the bottom gets a little bit heavier for them. And that's a little bit harder for them to wrap their heads around. But like Sean said, I think those buttons just be in there and that, that code, if you give them the if button A is pressed, flash this image right away, I think they get that because of the the readability of Python. I was weighing out the question between turtle and microbit which one should I start this quarter with and I chose turtle graphics this one because we're going away for a week on a field trip next week and I said Oh, we'll just do turtle real quick get it done get it out of the way they can see the the art and then we'll dive into the microbit but we kinda have that ability to flip back and forth until we We like our perfect fit.
0: And we grow over time, too, our use of the microbit and other microcontrollers in class. So the class that just ended last week, they were lighting up neopixels. They were attaching sensors. They were doing things with servos. So by the end of nine weeks, they were comfortable enough with the platforms that they could write code that they knew would work. And they also were literate enough in the code that they could go seek out either libraries or code snippets from the Internet that they could then repurpose for their own ends. They can follow tutorials, they can follow how-tos. So we tend to grow along with the micro bit and the microprocessor as we go and we introduce new things. We come back to that code that we typed at the beginning and we say, okay, what does this line do? We go through and we are walking through it line by line. We're understanding why it works so that by the time they get to about the five or six week point in the course, they're able to look at that blank screen and know what they're supposed to type and, and to get things going the way they need it to.
1: Yeah. And I I really like, for us, I think in the educational setting, maybe it's a little bit different as you're preparing your engineers. But in our situation, we like to hack code a lot. So give credit to where it's due. The, the, The whole thing, the kids go, what? I can use someone else's code? Yes, it's open source. You can use someone else's code, so they do a lot of Early on hacking and hacking is so simplistic in a middle school they change a couple numbers or they they change maybe the color but it helps them to develop some ownership and I think that's a benefit of teaching the little kids versus maybe in your field where, you're going to have to solve real problems, and you're going to have to write something for your <laughs> on your own.
2: <laughs> Eventually, right. But I mean, what I tell my students is engineers solve problems in teams. And in terms of how I sort of see the class, it's more the computer is a tool to solve problems. And that would be different than a computer science class, where the class is like fundamentally understand how computers work or fundamentally understand, I don't know, data structures and the way I operating systems function at like a kernel level our class is a bit more like a programming language is a set of tools and engineers use tools to solve problems just like they use pencils or rulers or computer aided drawing in order to solve problems
1: so by the uh, end of your course do they have to produce a product or do they test out how does that work
2: Yeah, so by the end of the course, we both have a final exam, like a regular college course, and I have my students do a group class project. We're actually going to introduce that today. Each one of the groups is about four students, and they have to use Python and a microcontroller, either an ESP8266 board. If they wanted to use a microbit, they could. They could use a Raspberry Pi, or they can uh, use an Arduino, and they have to solve a real-world problem using that platform. Uh, So right now, for instance, we've got this uh, fish tank in our engineering lab and uh, our uh, lab technician is sort of sick of feeding the fish. So one of the problems could be design this apparatus that feeds the fish and does it on a regular cycle or that the uh, lab technician can like push a button on a web page and feed the fish with. Uh, an example of another project was in a different course, students were designing these cars to run down a track and you tried to design the fastest car. And one of the groups designed this photo gate system that measured the car speed. We've also got got some projects where students build these parachutes and you measure the parachute drop time. So another project could be a design a way that you could measure the parachute drop time or apparatus that's like a countdown timer that releases the parachutes at a time. And along with that project, there are a number of different accessible parts. They have to give a presentation. They have to complete documentation. They have to build the code. They have to put the hardware together. And I try to build it in that there's sort of different parts Of the project that each one of the students could do, depending on what their skill set is, but they all have to work together and they all have to present and show the class what their solution is.
1: So, I was battling with this. We were having this conversation a couple weeks ago minimum lines of code, and then Sean over here will, uh, he'll, he can probably code more efficiently in less lines than than I will. Less readable, but but fewer lines. (laughs) So, you know, at one point the first quarter, I remember I told the kids, okay, you need to submit a code in with 15 lines of code. And I started thinking to myself, that's not very Pythonic. I shouldn't really put in a cap on it. Do you ever battle with that? So if a student gives you a project that probably took them only five or, you know, I'm simplifying it, but a little bit less amount of code, how do you deal with that?
2: That's a good question. So I kind of have a specific example. So one of the groups, They were querying a web API for sunrise and sunset data because they were turning a light on and off when the sun came up and then turn the light off when the sun set. So their program needed to know what time is sunrise and sunset. What I recall is that the group built in all of these commands that hard-coded in the month and hard-coded in maybe even the day of the month, as opposed to uh, using a data structure like a list and then uh, using a for loop in order to query different days of the month uh, repeatedly or use a data structure that maybe had both the month and the day, and then you can just do one query and like get back out the data that you were looking for. So, Sort of in that situation, if it's a core concept like loops or data structures in the course, I might say, yeah, your, your code could be a lot more simpler, could be easier to maintain, would be more transportable. Other people could use it if it was shorter in that case. But in other cases, I think readability really is important. This is one of the things that we struggle with teaching engineers and adults is that the right answer is only half of the solution. Being able to communicate that answer clearly uh, is the other half, just because like you find the number for the amount of stress at the end, if you can't logically explain how it was derived and like back up how that was derived, that's not particularly useful for a client that's building airplanes. They want to make sure that the method that you used was sound. And so in the same way with code, if it's more obtuse, it uses more lines, like it uses a for loop instead of like like a list comprehension, or maybe like it uses a list instead of a dictionary. That's stuff that I'm sort of okay with because readability, I think, really counts being able to have other engineers be able to read and use your code. But then there could be other situations where really you're just doing way, way more work than you need to. (laughs) Um, And instead, it would be better to shorten the program. I also like the idea of maybe that being a code challenge. Here's 20 lines. Can you rewrite this in 10 lines? That's a really good one. A code challenge I did recently was come up with a two or three letter phrase and then using indexing, index out or slice out all of the smaller words that you possibly can from that one set of words, that one string. I believe it was one group got approximately 17 different words out of a three word phrase. So wow. that, that one was pretty incredible, but it was also definitely
0: the most lines of code because
2: <laughs> they had, had a huge number of slicing operations to get all their words out.
0: The other thing I wanted to ask you about, Peter, in the lead up to our episode you were talking about the tools that you use in, in Python and you mentioned that you've put together a JupyterHub server for your classes to be able to share Jupyter Notebooks and, and let people fork off their own notebooks to be able to write code and explore it. I wanted to ask you more about that. Why Jupyter Notebooks for engineering? Like, you know, Is this something that's commonplace? Is this kind of a new thing that's really taking off? Can you tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I also want to hear the, about the tools that you chose, because there's a really large array of tools to write and run Python code, both online, like Google, Google Colab and Binder, or just locally, depending on which distribution you download, like Anaconda or from uh, Python.org. So one of the reasons uh, was just pedagogically. Jupyter Notebooks, uh, for those who don't know, is a web-based interface to write and run Python code and also include documentation. So there are three general types of cells in a Jupyter Notebook. One, you write code in. Another is the output that code produces. And then another type of cell is called a markdown cell. And in there, you include documentation. And you can write in the markdown form so you can get things to format bold or have large headers or build tables, build bulleted lists, stuff like that. So using Jupyter Notebooks, one of the reasons was that when we do lectures and code examples I can share those notebooks directly with the students and the code that runs. uh, You can see the output of it and I can include notes in the markdown sections to summarize what's going on in the code cells. That was one reason. Another reason is that in data science, Jupyter and the Jupyter ecosystem is one of the common tools that are used often. So getting some students trained with Jupyter Notebooks or the Jupyter Lab interface, which is Project Jupyter's newer interface, uh, might be a set of tools that they use later. A third reason is because Jupyter Hub exists. So since Jupyter Notebooks just run in a web browser, that doesn't mean that You can only run Jupyter Notebooks on your laptop. Uh, You can also run Jupyter Notebooks on an external server. Then students can just log into that server and run the Jupyter Notebooks in their web browser. So this is pretty big. If a student only has a tablet or only has a Chromebook, it's really difficult for them to install and run Python. It's not impossible, but it's pretty pretty tough, especially as one of your first engineering classes. And what Jupyter Hub allows you to do is run Jupyter Notebooks on the server. So anyone who's able to open a web browser, means you have a laptop, a phone, a Chromebook, a tablet, you can write, run Python code, which is pretty amazing that you can do it. Another thing about the way that Jupyter Hub works is that uh, the notebooks that students run or the Python code that they make that can persist on the server. So they can use Jupyter Hub almost like you use Google Docs in order to save your code, uh, reuse your code. Another benefit of Jupyter Hub is there are even ways uh, that you can pull GitHub repos into each one of the students' Jupyter Notebook server. So all of the labs for the course or the in-class assignments to the course, they can just like pre-populate in the students' Jupyter notebooks. And then I don't have to distribute labs and I can update them on uh, GitHub. But there are definitely many other ways to run, edit, write Python code. So your school chose Mew and I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. Why did you choose Mu as opposed to doing maybe idle or using spider Visual Studio Code or PyCharm.
0: You know, it's interesting for myself. I have, I think, about half of those editors and IDEs installed on my computer already for when I'm writing my own projects. But for the most part, when we're teaching, we're teaching in Mu because it connects really easily to the micro bit and to the Adafruit CircuitPython boards. The biggest thing is that it's very, very simple. It runs exactly the same way whether you're on Windows or Mac or anything else. It's the same rows of buttons. It's really clear. It's easy for the students to get to and read. And it's pretty easy to install. I mean, the biggest time sink in the installation process is really just downloading it and having the files verified. The other nice thing about it is that it includes Python. And it includes the same version of Python for everyone. So we don't have to worry about, oh, you're on a Mac OS laptop. And so you're running actually on the default interpreter, which is Python 2.7. So now you got to go and install 3.7. So we reduce and eliminate a lot of the variability in terms of the installation base, because what we're teaching at this stage is very, very simple. It's all things that are certainly within the wheelhouse of Moo in the state that it exists today. So that was the, the main reason for Moo, but we do use some other tools that are, are pretty helpful for us in terms of distributing assignments, having projects happen, collecting work that's submitted. So Kelly, why don't you talk a little bit about what's worked well for you?
1: I started with Replit. That's just because it's easy. I don't have to worry about downloading. I I share out my link for the first assignment and they can go there and and start typing away. But I have to go back to Moo because I don't know. I used Replit. That was the first my colleague in the, the previous year used it, Replit. And then when I open up, I just think, you know, I'm always thinking about that child that is not a coder, that really is taking this course because they have to, and it's just very simple. The buttons are very child-like friendly, I think, and for the new coders, the newbies, it just makes sense. You have that, the check function where I go in and it shows them exactly where they're missing their white space and, and how they have the uniformity of it's missing and you have your plotter right in it. And I just feel that it's the, the tab system on the top also allows all the programs still to exist there. I, I, they joke around, I have about 20 programs still up on my tab system. <laughs> and they're like, you can shut programs. I was like, no, I just click and go through them all. We try to get into GitHub, but I'm not sure that my students are quite ready. Sometimes they, they look at it, they can pull the code but we really haven't gotten into it so for me it's the only the two that i feel it's easy just to jump in when i opened up terminal i i was trying to do like i told i told sean i'm trying to be a real world coder. i opened up terminal the other day and i was just like i just can't <laughs> i just can't I'm, I'm just can't i'm just going to stay in Moo world for a little bit longer it's just easier it's easier for that person that coding doesn't come natural to it's safer it's it's a safe environment i think
0: for me, when we go to Replit, the biggest reason I use Replit is for their classroom functionality that they have set up that allows me to create assignments and projects, and the students can fork off their own versions of those and submit it back. It again, has a lot of simplicity to it. But one of the things that I'm am really interested to try this quarter that we haven't used yet is all of the multiplayer functionality that Repl.it just added, where multiple students can be working in the same code repository on Repl.it, I think is is phenomenal. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. And I, I'm just starting to play with it now. So I'm excited to see where that will lead. For the nine weeks that we have our students, these two packages tend to be enough for us. It tends to be just enough that we're gonna we'll get to it. One of the things I'm curious to see in subsequent years, once we start to get these students coming back, will be to see how far we can take it. Do we introduce Uh, a few days where we start talking about Git and how to do source code management and how to share code across participants and how to collaborate with it. The only thing I'm potentially wanting to introduce this quarter, and I'm glad that you brought up Jupyter as a good example of this, I want to use Jupyter as a teaching tool for demonstrations and lectures and where I'm presenting material because of the unique nature of Jupyter to be shared with all that markdown language as well so that I can give it to students so they can see almost here are my notes for the lecture along with the, all of the code and be able to run it themselves when they get it. So that might be something I'll come back and pick your brain about is how to set up a Jupyter Hub server for a middle school <laughs> in a way that makes sense.
2: <laughs> you, you absolutely can and you <laughs> Kelly you can do the command line like you can get on <laughs> you can, I know I can you can start your own Jupyter Hub server so hopefully in the show notes we can include some documentation links and i put together a little static site using a python package called mkdocs that detailed my journey setting it up because each quarter i wanted to make sure i could do it again so uh, <laughs> that's as much for me as it is for anybody else who wants to try Jupyter Hub for us another reason is just package installation and I want to kind of echo something that Kelly was talking about, which is like having to to download the thing. For our students, we need to be able to use some of the scientific Python stack, like mm-hmm. Matplotlib, NumPy, Pandas, and SimPy. So that would mean you've got to pip install something with a regular mm-hmm. Python installation. And trying to troubleshoot virtual environments and pip installing packages on many different student machines or on our uh, computers here at the college. You don't have administrator access, so you can't install new things on. That's something that I just didn't want to deal with. So using Hub, you can install whatever packages you want. And I just did the full Anaconda distribution of Python that includes no. NumPy, Pandas, all of those regular tools that data scientists and scientific Python community uses. Installing or pip install or conda installing has sort of been like abstracted away out of the course. Eventually, I think maybe that'll be something we do at the very end because students might want to use something that isn't part of the Anaconda distribution of Python, but I just didn't want to spend large amounts of time going over virtual environments and pip installation. That's still a story in Python that's just not as quite as strong as something like MATLAB. Like in MATLAB, you download it from one place, it's just one program, it just runs, and it's very clear. Everybody does it the same way and does the same thing but in python there's this pretty like wide array of the way that people get the code and the way that people run the code
1: right i can almost see a Jupyter Notebook lesson being made on how to install things and have a little bit of tester. So we'll be waiting for you to produce that. (laughs) I'm actually very keen on the Jupyter Notebook. We're actually going to try it out. We have to do a lot of work on it in two weeks. We are going to try it out with our sixth graders to see if they can at least see the data that Sean has programmed for a project. So we're hoping to to see it. So we'll be waiting for you to produce some of the teacher how to use and disseminate via the Jupiter hub
2: Yeah, I'd say one of the things very early just to think about would be authentication, like how will students log in, what usernames will they use, what passwords will they use. Our college uses the Google App Suite, so students log into their college email with Gmail, and they can use Google Docs for their college documents. There's a way to hook that into JupyterHub, so they use their same college usernames and passwords, but in different situations where that's not the case, that is one thing you have to think about because you don't want to broadcast the server to anybody on the planet, and then your server's all gunked up with people trying to run stuff.
1: I think we need to talk to Google. Google, if you're listening, we want Google Classroom connected with (laughs) Jupyter.
2: Well, it works at our college, so uh, (laughs) if you guys use Google products, maybe we can get it to work. Other instructors I know have been like, you just have to sign up for a GitHub account, and you can integrate it with GitHub. Using Git, at least for our first-year students, that might be like a a little bit too advanced
1: it's a big jump even when i get in there it's a it's a big jump i think
2: uh so i have a question for you guys what kind of educational resources like textbooks are you using like a big reason we wanted to move to python was to decrease textbook cost do you use a specific textbook do the students do homework
0: out of that how does that look like in your classrooms we have a couple of different things that we use the one of the nice things about middle school students is that there's this whole wealth of learn to code sites out there that are tailored towards students at this age level we use Tinker for most of our homework assignments so there's a lot of self-paced learning that happens through that it's really set up as a kind of a puzzle solving exercise interspersed with bits of instruction and, and information but then in our classroom we have books everywhere on a variety of topics so what we're really just trying to do is connect the student's own interest in a specific area with with what they need to learn or a resource for them. So for example I have some students that are really into you know, like Bitcoin and financial markets and Excel spreadsheets and tracking all this stuff. So I give them automate the boring stuff. I have other students who are are the gamers and I give them invent your own computer games with Python. We keep a lot of these books around. They're not necessarily textbooks, but they are more self-contained learning books like the learn to code and some intermediate code books so that students have some resources in the classroom that they can go to and crack open to be able to solve the problem that they're trying to figure out.
1: Yeah, and and for us, I don't really feel that a set textbook would set the way. We're not the type of teachers that start on day one, on page one. I think that's just not our style. Kind of like to pick pick up the book and and I'm not, you know, a person to start with variables, or sometimes I want to just jump in and, and do, if else, you know, conditional statements. And some books are different. So I guess that just depends on how you are, who you teach, or, or where you learned Python from. I think it does make it a different situation, because when you come into a, a community college or a four-year college, you expect a book. I think a student's like, oh, where's my book? Where's my reference? For me, it would almost seem if your library or the area could have a lot of the books that we recommended. And then those are the typical books that you hear all the time. The Swigerts and the Automate, the Boring stuff. I think, again, just depending on where that is.
0: The, the good thing is, with several of these books, there's an online version available for free as well. So a student doesn't have to buy a textbook or buy a book in order to get the uh, the benefit of it. There's the online version of it that's usually available, as well as a lot of great free tutorials, resources, things like that that we're starting to accumulate. Kaggle has a wonderful set of like pandas tutorials as well. So I can send a student that direction if they want to get into some sort of statistics or data analysis.
1: And I learned about Grok Learning. I went to a business professional development and Bloomberg sent their entire workforce to a Grok Learning site and did a couple hour of codes. And I, I do a couple, you can get right in and it just keeps going and going and it's all for free. So it's, it's one of the ones that I like to refresh my important small things that I'm going to teach the kids. I like to do it before each quarter just to refresh my vocabulary.
2: Yeah, I think I found an underrated thing about textbooks that I hadn't thought as much about before doing a lot of programming courses is that it does uh, bound the amount of material that you would have to learn. And I think for some adult learners, there's a good deal of security in knowing I only need to know this much because Python can do a lot, a lot of stuff and there are over 100,000 packages on PyPI. You don't have to learn all of it. So by having a book, you're like, these are the topics we're going to cover. And if you can cover these topics, like you'll succeed in the course. Until doing programming, I hadn't considered books in this, like, makes a subset of the material students would have to uh, learn. And that can sort of in some ways be like freeing.
1: Yeah, Christian from Fingster from Coffee Breaks, he offers a lot of the cheat sheets that I think might be more helpful for you. And I know he has a couple of cheat sheets on, I think he has one on Matlab. MATLAB. Ma- right. Yeah, I think he does. I don't know if you check it, but they're all free as well. Those type of resources, if I was a student in a community college course, I would say, where are my cheat sheets? <laughs> what do I need to study?
0: <laughs> so I know we're, we're running towards the end of our time together. I wanted to ask you, Peter, what is your go-to book for learning about how to teach the, these subjects or go-to resources, blogs, or where's your happy place when it comes to being a better teacher?
2: Well, I like to stay informed. So one of the things that I do is I try to read a couple different Python blogs regularly. So one of them that I really do like is PyImageSearch. And that's a lot about computer vision and using Python to do things like image segmentation. And there's some machine learning on that blog as well. Some of the YouTube channels that I watch, I like Corey Schaefer's work quite a bit. His Django series is pretty good. And then uh, in named Harrison, the Sendex YouTube channel, that's another uh, one that that I use. Yeah, he's great. I love his huge coffee cups. (laughs) They're (laughs) enormous. Uh, Andy's in Texas. So uh, anyway, one of the books that I think is really good is from Manning The book is Get Programming by Annabelle. She's an instructor at MIT and it's a really good book and the lessons are very short and she makes no assumptions sort of about the level of the learner when the book starts. For us that was almost the perfect book but the problem was is that there weren't enough end of the chapter questions on it. So for this course what I did was I wrote my own book using Jupyter Notebooks that's up on GitHub. The thing that I wanted to make sure to include was lots of of end-of-chapter questions so we could assign homework and students could get a lot of practice. So if anyone wants to use the book that we're using, it's called Problem Solving with Python, and that's at problemsolvingwithpython.com. And you can also buy a copy on Amazon. The print copy costs a little bit of money, but kind of like uh, Jake Vanderplas's Python for Data Science book, or some of the books by Alan Downey, like Think Python, the online version. Uh, that version is free and if anybody out there listening also wants to make a PR pull request on GitHub because they notice any errors, I'm always trying to make changes and always trying to make it better. It's kind of a, a living
0: thing. So what are some more other tools, uh, other things that you guys use? I'm constantly subscribed to, I think, about 15 or 20 different Twitter feeds in Python. You know, real Python tends to put out quite a bit. I look at a lot of data science feeds. I am still, you know, just trying to chip away at my knowledge of uh, pandas and try to turn it into something beautiful, right? Like I have that big uncut <laughs> block of marble that I'm trying to <laughs> trying to understand how much pandas can do. You know, really, I learn a lot just from podcasts, listening to other people. I tend to be more of an online research sort of guy. And in terms of my teaching and, and how to become a better teacher, I'm trying as, as often as I can to just observe other teachers and get the insights from the way that they're managing their classrooms, the way they assign work, the, the reasons for why they do all of the things. Like, help me understand why you're doing it that way. And sometimes they're doing it unconsciously, but most of the time it's a very specific purpose that they have in mind, it's a a behavior that they've practiced over years, and I get to benefit from that experience just by going in and asking the question.
1: I constantly get the two emails that I get daily, both Dan Bader and Fingster, Christian from Fingster. Those two, they, they send enough emails out that I, I get a lot of information. <laughs> and I even heard on, oh, I forget which podcast, I guess it was Talk Python to Me or something where they're saying that Fingster sends out so many sometimes that you just can't keep up, but I love them. So I see them in there and I'm like, oh, I need to read like four or five of them, catch up. There's a lot of little things that we do. I constantly am looking for new ways to teach it, but I've, I've found those syntax videos good little clips that especially on the lower end that the kids really understand. And to be honest, I just opened up the Python for Kids again and I I told Sean, I said, I just read 70 pages last night and it's probably like the most (laughs) I've read in one sitting without my kids bothering me. And and in Python for Kids, what I like about it is it gives me some more ideas that are silly ideas because Jason Briggs, he uses a lot of silly jokes. Like if you're 12, you wanna hear a dirty joke. And then, if, you know, if not, uh, sorry. <laughs> and so then he fills out the program like that. And that's just the silly things that we can do at a middle school level. I'm, I'm sorry, probably not at you, but uh, you can't really do that too much to your <laughs> students. So those are the tools that I stick to. We have so many books. And, and, and when I get tired with that one, I'll pick up another one and re-skim it or just go from there.
0: So Peter, where can people find you online if they have more questions, they want to connect, ask you questions about your book? uh, Where's the best place to find you? so i
2: blog at python for undergraduate engineers so you can follow my blog and if there are any students listening i sometimes do answer keys i find the answer to test questions or homework questions and stick that on uh, python for undergrad and
0: i'm also on twitter at p Kazarnoff. it's been a pleasure having you on it's really been refreshing to hear about teaching python in a different context to students that have different needs and different desires and are looking for different outcomes. It's been really helpful for us to get some new perspective and hear a new voice in the community. So I can't thank you enough for joining us today.
1: Yeah, and it really helps us get an eye. We're always looking for that place to go for our kids and, and what's going to be happening now and what's out there in colleges. So it's really nice to just be reminded that this is real it's happening thanks
0: sean thanks kelly all right well this is sean and this is kelly and this is peter signing off (laughs)